Okay, here we are for Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews, Session 6. Welcome. Um, before I jump into the review of what we covered last time, I want to check and make sure that we don't have any outstanding questions. Any questions that have come up or left over or that we ought to think about covering as we go through our material tonight? Okay. In that case, let's proceed ahead. Last time, we talked about uh, the first several of the seven Noahide laws. And we talked about idolatry and defined it as attributing the ability of change in the world to something other than God or the laws of nature that he created. And then we began to get into the specifics. That's sort of the general category. But we got into the specifics uh, of the how the 613 commandments would um, would map over to this. And we came up with a prohibition against believing or ascribing any deity to any but him, or making images for purpose of worship, or making an idol for others to worship, uh, or making three-dimensional figures of human beings or animals uh, in relief, that is, so that the three dimensions are kind of coming out at you, the same way we would perceive them in the real world. Uh, and we also talked about that that included making two-dimensional figures of the sun and the moon and the stars. And for those, it's two-dimensional because we perceive those things in two dimensions, because they're so far away, we don't actually see depth on them. We see them as if they were two-dimensional uh, uh, figures. So we're prohibited from making two-dimensional figures of those. And we talked about some of the other uh, idolatrous practices that, uh, that fall under that. We then moved on to blasphemy, and uh, instead of using the word curse, we use the word bless so that we can speak appropriately. But it, uh, blasphemy we defined as uh, blessing the creator, so to speak, and that it has a particular uh, form uh, when we got into the uh, Talmudic detail about that where a person would say, if, if we use the term Josie, which the Talmud does um, as a replacement for God, uh, it's uh, may Josie destroy Josie is the form of a blasphemous statement. Uh, and the courts go through a, a very careful process to uh, deal with that and get the appropriate uh, witness testimony without um, actually saying what was said until the very end, and then they clear the courtroom, and one witness says what the accused person actually said, and the other witness says, yes, I heard the same as him. <clears throat> and then uh, the judges rend their clothes and pronounce judgment on that. With regard to murder, we pointed out that that's not the same as killing someone. Uh, but that it is taking someone's life. There can be situations where it's appropriate to do that. Uh, murder, for example, would not be, or uh, killing someone would not be considered murder if you were a bona fide soldier acting lawfully in a war, or you were an executioner duly authorized by a, an appropriate court. Uh, or there could be situations where self-defense, um, if someone dies uh, in the process of you defending yourself uh, from them, that also may not be you know, considered murder. Importantly, we also talked about how embarrassing someone in a public way 
is considered the same as murder because you're really murdering them in the eyes of other people. Uh, so, uh, you know, we have a, a society that sometimes I think likes to put embarrassing things on the front pages of magazines and uh, that sort of thing, but that from a Torah standpoint is considered uh, a very inappropriate uh, and wrong thing to do. We also talked a lot about the prohibition against theft, and we went into a, a great deal of detail about that, pointing out that it includes uh, stealing money, um, committing robbery, uh, fraudulently altering land boundaries so that that's like moving my fence a little farther into my neighbor's property so that I can get a little more of his land, uh, refusing to pay debts and repudiating and or repudiating those debts, and wronging another person in business. And business is a very uh, important area because it's the commerce that makes things run. It's also an area that's fraught with challenges in terms of making sure that a business is uh, run appropriately in accordance with Torah requirements. We also uh, pointed out that it's uh, part of the prohibition against theft to plan or cover or desire to acquire something belonging to another person. Uh, certainly kidnapping is a form of theft because you're stealing a person. And any cheating in measurements and weights or even keeping those around uh, is considered to be uh, part of the prohibition against theft. And let's see. Yes, Pat. Okay. Did you want to halt for uh, just a few seconds or a minute or two? That's fine. Just, just give me the high sign when you're ready to start again. Okay, thanks, Pat. All right, any questions? No problem. Any questions about anything we've covered up to this point? Okay, let's move on then and talk about uh, another of the seven Noahide laws, which is a prohibition against certain sexual relations. Um, and this one obviously requires and makes very clear the point that 
we have to get into the details to know what this actually means. It's not an individual commandment, but a category of commandments. And Maimonides, in his uh, Mishnah Torah, uh, Laws of Kings, chapter 9, section 5, indicates that there are six prohibitions, six specific prohibitions uh, in this category. That a person is prohibited uh, against having sexual relations with uh, a man's mother, his father's wife, his sister, where they have a common mother, another man's wife, which we sometimes call adultery, uh, a male, and that would be homosexuality, and an animal, which uh, is commonly called bestiality. Now, these prohibitions are interestingly derived from a verse in Genesis, Genesis 2.24, one you're probably familiar with, that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now it says, let's just take it apart a little bit. A man shall leave his father and his mother. So his father, the phrase his father, alludes to his father's wife. So that's our um, uh, second bullet point at the top of the screen there. When it says shall cling to his wife, means his wife and not his colleague's wife. So there we get the prohibition against adultery. Uh, it says a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, which means not a male. So that rules out homosexuality. And they shall become one flesh. That excludes any domesticated animal or beast or fowl, for a man can never become one flesh with them. Um, and it also, on uh, would suspect analogously to what he indicated previously, when it says a man shall leave his father and his mother, uh, there we have the prohibition against relations with uh, a man's mother. So those are the uh, uh, the main ones. The prohibition against relations with a maternal sister is derived from a verse uh, also in Genesis chapter 20, verse 13, which says, she is my sister, my father's daughter, but not my mother's. Thus, she became my wife. Um, and so they derive that, that one is prohibited against relationships with a sister where they have a common mother, uh, where they have a common father would be a, a different situation. Uh, let's see. I want to make sure we cover everything that we intended there. It is my understanding that marriage for a Noahide occurs when a man and a woman have sexual relations with the intent that it constitute marriage. So from a halakhic or a legal viewpoint, as I understand it, it's not necessary to have a formal marriage ceremony. Um, they can just both decide, yes, we want to be husband and wife and we are having sexual relations with that intent, and once that occurs, they are considered married. Um, yeah, it's a fairly straightforward process. Uh, similarly, according to Maimonides and Laws of Kings, uh, chapter 9, verse 8, or uh, section 8, he says that divorce occurs 
when either the husband or the wife initiates a departure from his domain. So one of them decides to go, and the separation can occur if either he or she decides to uh, or desires to, to part and initiates that departure. Um, so this is a, a broad overview, and there are more detailed issues around this, uh, but that would require us to get into a more detailed study about that. So, Pat, you've asked a great question. So Hashem isn't against divorce. Um, from a Torah standpoint, my best understanding is divorce is not desired, certainly not anything anyone would wish for, but that the Torah allows for that. Uh, the Torah does not want someone to sit in a situation that they are just absolutely miserable in and can't stand uh, for the rest of their lives. And I know I think there are some religious uh, people from other religions that hold that, yes, once you get married, you're stuck with it forever, uh, no matter whether it works out or not. And the Torah does not hold that. Uh, so, no, it's my best understanding Hashem is not against divorce. Um, certainly, again, you want your person wants to pick carefully and uh, and hopefully uh, you know marry for life, uh, but that if you get into a situation where it's just not going to work, you can't make it work or whatever, um, that you need to recognize, okay, that's the reality of this, uh, and in that situation, then and, uh, and move on in life. So. Uh, yeah, much much more flexible uh, uh, situation, and uh, I uh, I understand. I understand some people who have divorced are made to feel that they've done terrible things, and it's bad, and they're bad, and uh, I, I you know can tell you that that is, from my understanding, not the Torah viewpoint. Uh, the Torah viewpoint is very practical. The Torah doesn't try to make people do something that's you know, impossible for them to do. Uh, and so, yes, sometimes, you know, things don't work out for whatever reason, and if so, then, you know, we move on. And uh, the Torah gives us that opportunity to do that. So it's, the Torah is very understanding of the human condition. Uh, so, and I see, yes, you're writing your, uh, person writing is just about ostracized from their church. That is unfortunately true with, with some churches, and uh, that's just not the approach uh, of Torah. Uh, the, the Torah approach is to recognize the reality of a situation uh, and help people deal realistically with where they are. It's one of the most freeing things I found when I began learning with the rabbis that uh, the, the Torah is very practical about the human condition and doesn't expect us to be super people or supermen or superwomen. Uh, it's certainly, you know, there are obligations that we have in life, but it also recognizes that we're human and, and uh, you know, we have to just work with, with what we have and do the best we can. So, um, and yes, some religious approaches do expect people to be perfect and that simply isn't realistic. And what that does is it can really um, cause a person to be messed up. And, and how that happens is because there's, there can be such a, in some religions, such a strong expectation for us to be perfect that we start um, 
trying to pretend like we are because we feel this tremendous obligation to do that instead of being realistic with ourselves about where we are uh, in a given situation. And, uh, um, and, and that can cause us to sort of start pretending that we're something that we're not and failing to see shortcomings in our character and things that we actually need to work on. The Torah wants us to be very, very realistic. Uh, I can't recall if I uh, shared this story in this class before, but uh, there was a point at which I, um, I read in a, in a book that Rabbi Akiva, who was one of the great uh, Torah sages, said, uh, he who has bread in his basket today and asks, what shall we eat tomorrow, is of those of little faith. He who, he who has bread in his basket today and asks, what shall we eat tomorrow, is of those of little faith. And I sat there and I read that, and I'd been learning with the rabbis for a long time. And I sat there and scratched my head and I said, well, I make a living, and I've got bread in my basket, and I'm worried about retirement, and I'm worried about whether I'm going to have enough savings and all this. So does that mean, uh, you know, that I'm missing the boat here or something? And I went to one of my rabbinic mentors, and he wonderfully said to me this. He said, look. He says, Rabbi Akiva is a guy on a very, very high level. He said, you aren't there. <laughs> and it wasn't a condemnation. I mean, I don't think he would say that virtually any of us are there. He said, you can't pretend to be in a place that you're not or at a level that you're not. You have to be realistic about where you are and first accept that. And then through study and learning and going over ideas, you can begin to move, but you can't skip steps along the way and try to pretend that you're at some level that you really aren't. And it was such a freeing thing uh, on, on his part to, uh, um, to, you know, to say that, uh, because I realized that, um, you know, yeah, I, I wasn't at that level, and I still was worried about retirement and what would come next and would I be able to keep my job and you know, those kinds of things. Um, so, Pat, yes, so Hashem judges us on the fact of where we are. It is my understanding that we are, uh, we are basically judged on the basis of where we are and what we're doing with what we have. Uh, l l let me give you an example. If, if um, a person is, um, let's say, has a brilliant mind, a brilliant, brilliant mind, and they are able to um, grasp concepts very quickly. Um, and then we take, and so, and so they study, you know, uh, I don't know, I'll pick a number, six hours a day, 10 hours a day, something like that. And then let's take somebody who has, you know, a great struggle with intellectual matters, and they work really hard at it, uh, but they don't get it as quickly. Just like some people grasp math really fast and some people don't. Some people grasp physics really fast, other people don't. But then let's say the person diligently studies and keeps going. Well, it's very difficult for me to imagine that God's going to come along and say, well, this person is doing so much better, you know, than this person because, uh, you know, they were given, uh, they ended up with a, a mind that worked much better. I mean, we're, I think, judged on the basis of what we have and what we do with what we have. That is my best understanding.
we get into lots of trouble, I think, when we do comparisons, because as you say, everyone is on different levels. Um, and, you know, some people have a certain propensity to, there, there are people that can learn for, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. But there are other people that, you know, they can, they can get through an hour or two and that's it. And you have to know yourself and be realistic with yourself as opposed to uh, try to pretend that, you know, I'm somebody that I'm not or that I have the skill level that I'm not. So it's very important to be very realistic with myself about who I am, what I'm capable of, uh, and what I can do with that. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. Um, let's see. Um, any other questions about uh, Noahide prohibitions around sexual relations? Okay, let's move on. Um, the next of the seven Noahide laws is a rather unusual one. Um, this is a, a prohibition against eating the limb of a living animal. And by this law, we are prohibited from eating any part of an animal that has been removed from that animal while the animal was still living. So, for example, um, a person can't come along and tear off a leg from a cow while the cow is still alive and eat it. Now, that sounds really kind of gruesome, and we might think, well, you know, I mean, gee, nobody would ever do that these days. Um, and yet there are some practical applications. Um, if you are familiar with something called stone crab, uh, this is a practice that uh, where the a crab is harvested, it's a particular kind of crab, and a leg is pulled off, and then the crab is thrown back in the water to grow another leg. And the pulled off legs are then served in restaurants. And this came up uh, one time for me when I did not have time to uh, halakhically determine whether a crab falls under the definition of an animal, uh, but I decided that the safe side was simply not to eat that particular dish uh, when I was invited to do so, and I, you know, I think I ordered salmon instead uh, at, at that particular restaurant. Um, so there, and there are other uh, things in in the the, uh, the food world that would fall under that category. So that raises an interesting question of, you know, what are we supposed to learn from that? Um, you asked the question about lobster. I don't believe that that would fall under this prohibition because I believe the lobster is dead at the time that it is eaten. Lobsters, I understand, are thrown into uh, a pot of boiling water and uh, boiled while they're alive, which also sounds pretty gruesome. Uh, but I don't believe that they are dismembered before they are dead. And uh, so I, I'm not aware that that would fall into this prohibition. I also don't know if shellfish fall into the definition of an animal for this purpose. Uh, that's one I have not researched, but uh, when the crab thing came up, I just decided to go on the safe side. It didn't sound... Um, didn't sound quite the same, or didn't didn't sound like something I wanted to to go uh, get involved in. Now you've asked the question: Do we have the same restrictions as the Jews? We do not. The Jewish people are prohibited 
from eating shellfish. So they, they are prohibited from crab and lobster and clams and oysters and all those things regardless. Uh, Noahide is not restricted from those. Uh, those, those are uh, allowed to be eaten uh, by a Noahide, um, but we have to make sure that we do not violate this prohibition against eating uh, the living animal. So what can we learn from this commandment? Uh, it's often suggested that we learn to avoid cruelty to animals. Um, and Maimonides, in his book, The Guide for the Perplexed, said that uh, it's prohibited to cut off a limb of a living animal and eat it because such, act, such an act would produce cruelty and develop it. Besides, the heathen kings used to do it. It was also a kind of idolatrous worship to cut off a certain limb of a living animal and to eat it, unquote. So we do learn that, you know, one shouldn't be cruel to animals. Uh, and that's an important benefit. But is that all? And, and if that were the case, why not just have a prohibition against cruelty to animals? So the cruelty to animals is certainly an important side benefit, but there's a very important underlying message in this particular commandment uh, that I received from uh, Rabbi uh, Israel Chait of uh, Far Rockaway, New York. And uh, these are his ideas, but if I've made any mistake in giving them over, I have to take full responsibility for that. But I uh, want you to know that that's that uh, he was the source for me. He raised the question, how do we know it's okay for me to eat a peach? And the reason is that God clearly gave permission for man to eat of the fruit of the trees. In fact, let me step back one, one step further back. Everything belongs to Hashem because he created it. So it all belongs to him. So if that's true, then all the food that's created also belongs to him, including a peach. Now, God clearly gave permission for man to eat of the fruit of the trees because he said in Genesis 1.29, God said, Behold, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, it shall be to you for food. So there's a clear permit, if you will, given to man to uh, eat seed-bearing plants. It's important to note that in Adam's time, they were not given the right to kill animals in order to eat the meat. Now, after the flood... God gave specific permission for Noah and his offspring to eat meat. Because in Genesis 9.3, he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be to you as food. Like plant vegetation, I have now given you everything. So before man had permission to eat of seed-bearing things, now after Noah, or after the flood, he has permission to eat meat. But that permission is a conditional one. And the condition is man can eat meat as long as it comes from a dead animal. Man can kill the animal and eat it, but man does not have permission, that is a permit, if you will, to just grab an animal and rip off a limb from it and eat it. That level of permission was not given to man. 
He's only given permission to eat from an animal that has already died. So one of the things that this teaches us is the importance of boundaries around the things that God gave us permission to have and the things that he didn't have. Because it's very easy for man to think of himself as all-powerful and all-authoritative. And what this command does is that it reminds us uh, that we're not all-powerful and all-authoritative. We're allowed to eat meat, that's true, but only under the circumstances for which we were given permission to do so by the Creator. And you've raised a good question. I would think they couldn't also just kill for sport. Um, I'm not certain whether there is a prohibition against that or not, uh, directly halakhically, although it strikes me as certainly philosophically in keeping with the Torah that if you need an animal to kill it for meat, that's one thing, but to kill for sport seems just totally uh, at odds with the whole Torah approach of respect for uh, the things that God created. So uh, I, I would agree with you. I don't know if that's a halakhic prohibition. Certainly it seems that it would be uh, a philosophical one. So death for the animal, or death of the animal, is an actual uh, halakhic event uh, because the permit, and, and that becomes the permit that allows the Ben Noah to eat it. So uh, death for the Ben Noah occurs when the breathing and the heart stops. So uh, it's not actually the removing of the limb that's prohibited, it's partaking of the animal before the halakhic event of death, which is the permit that allows us to partake of the animal. Okay. And Pat, I see, yep, seems cruel to just go and kill an animal for no reason. I absolutely agree. Uh, just uh, it, it doesn't seem proper any more than it would seem appropriate to just rip a tree down for no reason whatsoever. Um, death occurs when the, the halakhic event for the Noahide is death, and death occurs when the breathing and the heart stops. So um, uh, when, the, when the animal stops essentially convulsing. Now we got into a very interesting discussion uh, recently about that <clears throat> because one, a Noahide who um, has a small farm and slaughters his own uh, animals found that they will twitch for some time after they've been slaughtered. Uh, and we wanted to check to make sure, well, does that mean they're still alive and you can't cut them up until then? And the answer that I received from Rabbi Che was no, that Maimonides, when he talks about the animal still convulsing, he's talking about major convulsive movements, not just little individual nerve twitching kinds of things that apparently can go on for, uh, for some time. So it's that halakhic event, the death of the animal, that becomes the permit uh, that allows the Ben Noah uh, to partake of that. Okay, any questions, uh, further questions about that particular law? Okay, let's go on to the final one, and that is establishing courts of law. This is what is often considered to be the one positive uh, commandment of the Noah is to establish uh, courts of law. 
And Maimonides, it's interesting, there's a little difference uh, of opinion between Maimonides and Nachmanides. Um, Maimonides holds uh, that we are obligated to set up judges and magistrates in every major city to render judgment concerning uh, the six uh, mitzvot, the six commandments we've already discussed, and to admonish the people regarding their observance. Nachmanides, uh, however, uh, holds that the main function uh, of, uh, of this command uh, and the courts is to deal with civil cases like you know, petty theft and wage disputes and fraud and that sort of thing. Um, so the, a, a slight difference of opinion. What is, does seem to be clear, at least for Maimonides' position, is that it doesn't appear possible to do that today. Uh, you can't set up, we have courts of law in the United States, but to set up courts that would make idolatry uh, illegal and blasphemy illegal uh, and eating a living animal illegal uh, does not seem like we'd get very far uh, in the United States today, nor probably, except perhaps in the time of King Solomon uh, and maybe a few other spotty times in history, um, I suspect that has always been the case, that there have not been courts established that upheld the uh, seven Noahide laws. But from the Nachmanides standpoint, that the main function is to deal with civil cases like theft and wage disputes and fraud and that sort of thing, uh, then we do have a court system like that. And that allows us to have an orderly society and you have to have laws in an orderly society in order to be able to uh, and, and some kind of court system in order to be able to have a society uh, at all. Otherwise, law and order breaks down and, uh, and it's pretty difficult to carry on commerce and, and so forth. Um, some of the things that uh, virtually uh, all the, uh, as I understand it, uh, that the sages agree on um, is, uh, are these, that courts should be established and any act that contributes to an unjust court decision should be prohibited. Uh, and, and Pat, to answer your question, Nachmanides doesn't think we need courts for murder. No, I don't, I don't think that statement's correct. I think he would probably agree uh, that we, we do need courts to cover that. Um, the uh, particular section that I had read, and I'd have to go back and look at my notes there, uh, indicated, though, that his, he was thinking more along the civil case line where you've got uh, basically money and damages and those kinds of things. Uh, my guess is he would certainly hold that you would need courts to, uh, to handle murder cases as well. Um, but the two things that the major commentators agree on is there should be courts uh, and that anything that would contribute to having an unjust court uh, decision should be prohibited. And they get into some specifics around that, um, some positive uh, detailed commands uh, that, first of all, we should appoint judges and officers of the court, uh, that we must treat litigants equally before the law. You can't favor one side or the other in any kind of a court proceeding. Um, witnesses do need to testify when they're asked to come forward, so they, they can't uh, get out of that. If someone uh, threatens them, they still need to come forward and testify. Uh, because otherwise people could intimidate witnesses and you would end up having a very unjust system. Uh, the courts 
are supposed to inquire into the testimony of witnesses. Now, the court system, uh, in, uh, in, from a Torah standpoint, is very different than the U.S. judicial system. The U.S. judicial system, when you go into a criminal-type case, uh, you end up where one person is trying to give all the arguments why the person is guilty, uh, and that's the prosecutor, and another person is trying, the defense attorney is trying to give all the arguments why the person uh, is innocent, and each side is trying to win the case, so to speak. Uh, the Torah court system was very different. There, were, there was no jury that uh, they were trying to convince. The judges were experts at inquiring into the testimony of witnesses, and they would grill the witnesses and uh, had ways of figuring out if they were really telling the truth, uh, and really dug into the testimony to find out uh, are they telling us what we really uh, what the real truth is here and ferreting out what the real truth is or not. Um, so it was a, a bit of a different system uh, in those days. There are there are also prohibitions uh, against a judge uh, committing unrighteousness, uh, accepting any kind of a gift from a litigant. Uh, there's a very interesting story about that in. Um, uh, in Maimonides' The Commandments, uh, in Volume 1 about the positive commandments, when we get to commandment number 177, which is treating litigants equally before the law, um, there's a note at the end uh, with a real interesting story. It says, fairness to both litigants in the procedure of the trial is of the essence of this commandment. The Talmud has preserved many interesting anecdotes illustrating the extreme care of the sages when acting as judges to treat both parties equally avoiding the slightest departure from the standard of fairness. Thus, Rabbi Ishmael, son of Rabbi Yose, had a gardener tenant who regularly brought him a basket of grapes every Friday. Once, he brought it on Thursday, and the rabbi asked him the reason for his coming a day earlier. Quote, having a lawsuit to be tried before thee today, unquote, said the gardener. Quote, I thought by doing so I might save myself the journey tomorrow, unquote. Upon this, the rabbi refused at once to take the basket of grapes, even though they were really his own, and declined to act as judge in the case. This Rabbi Ishmael did to preclude the barest possibility of favoring his gardener and in order to observe the principle of treating litigants before the law equally. And they go on to say, the sages stressed again and again the importance of rendering true judgment. Whosoever renders a true judgment is accounted as if he had been a co-worker of the Holy One, blessed be he, in the work of creation, according to uh, Exodus 18. So they're very, very careful around this whole uh, uh, whole issue. Now, you've raised a great question, in uh, Pat, who would be the judges, Noahides or Jews? I think if you're living in a Torah society, then the Torah law system is going to be handled by Jews, and uh, the Jews would probably be the judges. We don't live in a situation like that, and so we obviously have um, both Jewish and non-Jewish people who are judges, but they are operating under the U.S. judicial system, not under the Torah justice system. You can, however... Uh, and uh, a Noahide could do this. Um, in a court, if I, for example, had a dispute with another Noahide and we both agreed to do so, 
uh, we could go find uh, three Jewish uh, scholars, judges, uh, rabbis who are uh, appropriately versed in the law and bring our case before them and agree that we will accept whatever judgment uh, they uh, bring uh, in that particular situation. Um, so, uh, but in a, in a, I think a true Torah society, uh, you would probably have judges who would be, uh, would be Jews. Uh, there's also obviously a prohibition against the judge favoring a litigant, which is what we just discussed. Uh, prohibi prohibition against the judge being deterred by fear of a litigant's threats. So if a, uh, a litigant threatens a judge, the judge is supposed to totally ignore that and uh, just uh, render appropriate judgment. Uh, you're also not allowed to favor a poor litigant out of compassion. And that would be a very easy thing to do, you know, especially if imagine situation where a very, very poor person is in a court case against a very, very rich person. You know, it would be very easy for the judge to say, gee, you know, we're only talking about $500 here. This rich person wouldn't even notice that. That's pocket change for them. Uh, and it would so help this poor person. But a judge isn't allowed to do that. You have to judge the case absolutely with no favoritism one way or the other. Similarly, you can't discriminate against a litigant because that person happens to be a sinner. Uh, so if I know that that person is kind of, you know, loose and, and doesn't have the best reputation, nevertheless, I have to judge the case if I'm the judge before me and not take in, uh, discriminate against that person uh, just because he's a sinner. Uh, one is not allowed to pity a person who has slain or mauled someone else. Uh, you're not allowed to discriminate against someone because they're a proselyte, uh, that is a convert or an orphan, uh, and uh, you cannot, if you're a judge, hear one litigant in the absence of the other. You've got to have everybody there uh, in the room at the time uh, that you're going through that. Okay, any questions about, uh, oh, let's see, I've got a few more. Uh, you're also not supposed to appoint unlearned judges. Um, anybody who's not appropriate for that. Uh, and obviously it would seem, seem obvious that there is a prohibition against the court killing an innocent man. Uh, interestingly, there's a prohibition against incrimination by circumstantial evidence. In the Torah court system, there had to be witnesses. And so you could not uh, you could not convict someone on the basis of circumstantial evidence alone. There had to be eyewitnesses, which is real different than uh, the situation that we find ourselves in uh, in the U.S. judicial court system. Uh, you're not allowed to punish a person uh, for a sin committed under duress. Uh, and you're not allowed to kill a murderer without trial, which we see happened, uh, you know, I think a number of times in the, in the Old West, or the Wild West. Uh, and finally, you're not allowed, uh, obviously, to testify falsely. Um, and you're right, Pat, our courts do, uh, do use circumstantial evidence now, and that's uh, you know, just a very different kind of, uh, of system than the, uh, the Torah system was, was set up. So those are 
our seven Noahide laws, six prohibitions uh, and one positive commandment. Any questions or comments about any of those? How would they know if a person is testifying falsely? That's a very good question. Um, there are a couple of ways. If you get um, other witnesses involved um, who say, let's say, for example, that Joe is accused of um, uh, killing Harry. And an eyewitness comes along and says, I saw Joe kill Harry. And the judges um, uh, inquire into it, and they discover that Joe supposedly killed Harry at 5 p.m. on Thursday. And another witness comes along and says, well, the first witness couldn't have seen Joe kill Harry because the first witness was with me on the other side of town at 5 p.m., and we were in the middle of a business meeting. Ah, now we have a problem here because we know somebody's testifying falsely. So they would have ways of inquiring uh, around that to uh, try to prove whether a person was telling the truth uh, or not. The, the Torah judges were great psychologists in that they understood psychology of people and knew how to put pressure on a person and uh, do it in such a way as to find out are they really telling the truth or are they not. Um, and in at least the Torah court system for Jews, and I think there is, um, it's not quite the same for Noahides, but in the Torah system for the Jewish people, there had to be two witnesses, not just one. So a single witness in that uh, situation could not convict a Jewish person. It had to be two. Um, so two or, uh, or more witnesses. Uh, for Noahides, I think that Maimonides holds that one witness is sufficient, but I would have to research that um, before saying that that's, uh, that's the case, for sure. Other questions, Pat? Yeah, it seems that more than one certainly would, uh, would be appropriate because, you know, what do you... What do you do in the situation where, you know, the defendant says, I didn't do it, and the witness says, yes, you did, uh, and, you know, gets into a real interesting Talmudic discussion of who do the courts believe in situations like that, and uh, so it's, it's a very detailed study. There's one more, uh, one more thing I'd like to cover tonight, unless you have other questions on the seven Noahide laws. Okay, um, and that's a couple of, I guess, heavily charged words, um, belief and faith. Uh, belief and faith are heavily a religious-based thing. Uh, and ironically, there is no concept in Torah of believing something that you don't know. Uh, and we could ask the question, well, why would someone do that? Why would someone believe something they don't know. In fact, there are people who hold that we believe this, whatever the this is, because it is absurd. And the more absurd that it is, the more praiseworthy they think it is to believe it. Now, if we step back and look at that idea, it's really crazy. Because how could something 
I mean, it, we're, they're saying the more absurd it is, the more laudable it is to believe it. And why would a person think that? Because it becomes a very crazy circular argument. For how could it be considered more religious to believe something the more it doesn't seem to be true? And that would suggest that the more you come to actually know, the less religious you would be. So the Torah approach is very different. It is not based on faith in the sense that that word is used in our society. Torah is based on knowledge and understanding. Uh, we should know and understand why we have a conviction about something. Uh, in fact, one of my rabbinic mentors suggested that a belief is a conviction that you have concerning something about which you are ignorant. Uh, because if I really knew it, I wouldn't have a belief about it. I wouldn't have to have a belief about it. And I think we suggested earlier uh, in one of these sessions that nobody usually says they have a belief in yogurt uh, or even electricity, which they've never seen. Uh, they've only seen the manifestation of electricity. So, but, but people have used it enough and studied enough and so forth that they know that electricity can, exists and they know yogurt exists because they can see it with their senses and taste it and smell it and touch it and feel it and so forth. So the Torah's emphasis is on study and learning, which is very different from any other religion in the world. I know of no other religion in the world that promotes that. Most say that you need to believe this or that, and some want you to blindly accept what one person says because he's the authority, whereas Torah is the complete opposite of that. Um, the Torah approach is about learning and questioning until we fully understand what is and why we have a conviction about it. So this is a very different approach to the area of what we commonly call religion than most people are used to. And that's why Judaism isn't just another religion per se, because the Torah doesn't ask you to believe something. It asks you to get involved in the world of study and learning so that you can know what's true. Um, and that's why at the beginning of this course we started with the concept of how do we know what's true? Um, and that forms the basis for real knowledge and understanding, not blind faith or belief. And Pat, you raise a great point. You know, you could you could always you always had questions but could never get the answers. Uh, and and that's true because you know uh, when people are generally or who are believing something are threatened by questions <laughs> because questions can you know sometimes point out inconsistencies. Um, one of the things that we don't often see is how much the society around us affects us. Uh, we live in a predominantly Christian-based society, at least in the United States, and that society influences, influences, uh, influences us in some subtle but powerful ways. Um, for example, most people in our society likely think that religion has to do with faith and belief because that's what uh, the various aspects of Christianity and Catholicism and so forth teach. And over time, that teaching has kind of seeped into the general assumption base of our society. Um, and remember, we made that point in our, in our earlier study of Nine Tools of Torah where we said the most dangerous assumptions are the ones we don't realize that we're making. Another interesting point is that if you're interested in Torah, 
some people may ask you if you're going to convert to Judaism. And it's a very interesting question to step back and ask, why are they asking that? Um, and the reason I would suggest is because in our society, most religions are set up like clubs. If you want to be this, you convert to this. If you want to be that, you convert to that. If you want to be an X or a Y or a Z, you have to convert to Xism or Yism or Zism. But Torah Judaism has never held that. Uh, Torah is unique in that it maintains a very holistic worldview. Um, both Jews and Gentiles can have a relationship with God. They can be involved in perfecting themselves. They can have a share in what's called the world to come without any conversion at all. And that's why you'll never get a knock on the door from someone in a dark suit and a white shirt who hands you pamphlets and does his best to coerce you into coming to the local synagogue. Um, Judaism doesn't seek converts. Uh, and, and the reason is there's no need. I mean, in fact, if you go to a rabbi and you say, I want to convert, usually the first thing the rabbi will do is try to talk you out of it. Why? Because there's no need for you to convert. Um, there's plenty of learning and character development that you can do as a Noahide without converting. So, in, in summary, from a Torah perspective, it's all about learning and knowledge, not about blind faith and belief. And the Torah doesn't ask us to believe anything. It asks us to study and learn so that we know what's true and what's real. Uh, and, yes, I see your examples, Pat, and, and I absolutely agree. So, any questions I can answer on that? Okay. Well, in that case, that is, I see we're at about five minutes to the top of the hour, and that is what I wanted to cover tonight. Um, oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm honored to have the opportunity to share this with you. This was, all this material was shared with me. Uh, you know, by uh, uh, rabbinic mentors, and it's just a great honor for me to be able to turn around and, and share it with you. So um, if you have any questions, please drop me an email, let me know, um, and otherwise we'll, uh, we'll tackle some more aspects of this uh, next week. In the meantime, I hope you have a great uh, rest of the Hanukkah celebration and a great New Year, and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you next Sunday. Go ahead, Pat. I see that one thing. Uh, might want to get a hold of Ray because why? I'm not sure what emails. I'm not aware that uh, Ray sending out has been sending out any emails about this class. If, if he is, I I'm not aware of them. You get others. Would you be able to forward one to me, Pat, so that I can see the kind of email that you're talking about? Just anyone regarding any class? 
because I don't, uh, yeah, I don't get any for uh, other classes either. So, so, and I'd like to hope I'm on his his email list. But if you could forward one, just any random one to me, that'll give me a sense of uh, of that, and then I could follow up with him. Uh, okay. Not a problem. Well, in that case, we'll hopefully talk with you next week. Thanks so much.